Open your Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in chapter 12, which we'll look at a little later. The fact that what we're dealing with is actually another cycle of sevens. We're not told that this is like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, but this is a seven within this book of, of many sevens. Again, it being the Apocalypto of Jesus Christ, it's a, a clue at the very beginning that this is written in a particular type of a genre of literature, which is known as apocalyptic literature, which is why you see all these symbols and signs and um, dragons and things like this, because they represent something. So this isn't the only thing in the Bible written apocalyptically. We see um, things in Daniel and other places, but also outside of the Holy Bible, there are other writings that are written in this style. So it's, it's not unheard of and not unknown that this style of writing is a symbolic writing. So the thing is to know what is the key to interpretation. And as with the rest of the Bible, the key to interpreting the Bible is the Bible itself. We call it the analogy of faith, so that uh, the only infallible interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So if there's something in Scripture is not clear, well, you find if you're going to interpret that, make sure that it is aligned with a, a clear teaching of something else somewhere else in the Bible. There's no doctrine of Scripture that is not in some place or another in the Bible clearly articulated. So... Scripture will not, the Holy Spirit will not contradict himself, and so neither will Scripture. So we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, as we will even do here today. So let's go to the Lord of his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you bring us together around it, that we can read it at home in our own language, as um, Wycliffe Bible translators like to say it's in, in the heart language of the person. Uh, we do pray for their continued work to translate uh, your word into heart languages of people all over the world, people who still do not have your word in their own language. And, and when you see people read your word for the first time in their own language, it's, it helps us to appreciate what we have, that we take for granted, that people died to be able to have your word in the common tongue of the people. So we do pray for their continued work and that we would give it more attention, that we would not have it to be dusty on our shelves, that people would see it for what it is, surely the very word of God. So we thank you for your spirit, for your church, that we are able to understand and have this applied to our lives, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start in chapter 12, verse 1, so that we have <coughs> the connection here, because what we see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, is um, you know this dragon against a pregnant woman, and it seems like well that's a mismatch if ever there was one, and indeed it is. The, the dragon is no match at all for this pregnant woman, and uh, we saw last week that that's the church, Old Testament, New Testament church is being protected by God, and that the the serpent from the garden is now a ten-headed dragon. It has grown and it has become powerful in the, in the world, but the church um, birthing Jesus Christ from the Old Testament, and when Christ is born and taken into heaven, it's the final destruction of that ancient serpent. And so that's what we're seeing today. So 1 through 6 
is the church in the world from a spiritual behind the veil perspective and then what we'll see in um, 7 through 12 is the same imagery the same idea uh, but how it's what's happening in heaven during all this time so revelation 12 verse 1 and a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon <clears throat> with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So again, the 1,260 days, three and a half years, this is symbolically the time period of the church. <clears throat> there is a time of suffering, but it's not complete suffering. It will be cut off so that our time is relatively short. And we'll see that Satan himself realizes that his time is short. And so uh, it's to be an encouragement to the church that goes through tribulation and trials and persecutions and some people being um, tortured and put to death for their faith. And they see these things in other places at other times. Um, again, being reminded that there's more persecution and death of Christians today than any, any other time in the history of the church. And what God is telling them is like, you know, just a little further. Satan's time is short, but we're waiting for the full number of the saints to come in. So, as on earth, Jesus has been born here, and he has withstood all the attacks of Satan and the temptations of Satan, and even the natural elements attack him, as we saw storms being thrown at him, and, and he handles them by commanding the storms to be still. He has this power even over the elements. And so Jesus um, commands demons as well, and they obey. So he has this great power. And there's something that happens in heaven when Jesus defeats death with his own death because he is vindicated by the Father as innocent and worthy of all praise and honor and he is resurrected from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. And so while this is happening on earth, Jesus prays in the garden as sin of the world is beginning to be laid on him. And he prays, um, Father, if this possible for this cup to pass, please let it. But yet not my will, but thine be done. And he sweats great drops of blood. He goes back to his disciples and they're sleeping. And he tells them, you know, can you not remain awake? I know indeed the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he is beginning to increasingly be abandoned. And everything is just being laid on, on him. And so as he's going through this... There's a battle taking place in heaven. And we see in verse 12. Let me go ahead and read 12, 7 through 12, and then we'll break it down a little bit. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. <clears throat> and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The word of the Lord. So as we look back again at verse 7, war arose in heaven. Michael, who is an archangel, we see him in Jude, we see him in Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, we're not told a lot about um, the, the, the hierarchy of angels and, and uh, all these demonic powers and where exactly they came from. At what point did they actually fall? What, there's lots of information that, that we're left with to speculate. But there's... What we do is, is we cling to things that are revealed to us. And so one of the things that we do know is that Michael is, is, is one of the archangels. And it seems that one of his jobs was to um, defend Israel in the Old Testament against the accusations and against the attacks of the demonic forces against Israel. So in the heavenly places, you have this, this thing that's been taking place. And so it's called a, a war here. So during this time, especially during this time of Jesus Christ, as he's going to the cross and he, he, he lays dead in the grave for three days and is resurrected on the third day, it's viewed in this book of symbols where you have actual people being mentioned, but symbolic things happening. We have Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, who we see is um, Satan, the devil, um, that ancient serpent, and we see them fighting. So there is this war in heaven. So what is the symbolism? Is this actually a war that's being fought? If we were to be able to go up into heaven, would you actually see like them, you know, shooting arrows at each other, lightning bolts at each other, wrestling with one another? You know, what is it that's taking place? And some of that may have actually been what is taking place, but what we see from the rest of Scripture and what is definitely at work here is we see the symbolism of this war arising in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting. It's, it's more like, and I know some of this might, it's like, it is very difficult to take images that you have from the book of Revelation that in your mind you have made that this is not symbolism this is a TV crew that has shown up and showed you what's going on so this is symbolism and so what kind of warfare is being fought and most likely it's like an epic courtroom battle with deadly consequences so if you think about it like this, there is this battle that's taking place, this war that's being fought, but it is over whether or not any of the believers from the Old Testament to New Testament are even going to be allowed to be in heaven. Will they not also be condemned along with Satan and his angels? You know, what is the verdict going to be? And so you'll notice, too, in verse 7, Michael and his angels fight and the devil and his angels fight back. So it's not like, I mean, who's initiating this battle? 
and it, it's Michael and his angels who are now fighting this final fight against the devil and his angels. And so they're doing this, but it's Michael who's on the attack. And if you look at verse 10, we see, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And so who is this dragon? And if we continue to look, we see in verse 11, where is this? In verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. So this is where um, Safis, which is in the Septuagint, in, the, in Genesis, when you see the serpent and they translate that into Greek, that word is Sophis. So this is this ancient serpent who's now turned into this ten-headed dragon. So this is the deceiver that was in the garden, is the one that is at battling now, who is called the devil. And in Greek, that's diabolos or diabolos, which means slanderer or false accuser. So what we see him doing in the garden is slandering God himself. Did God really say that? You know, God knows that when you eat, you will not surely die. He's a liar. He's, Satan is saying that God is a liar. He is slandering. He's a false accuser of God. And then he's called Satan. And the Greek word there is Satan. Satan. It's a transliteration of this word. It means adversary. The one who is the adversary. In a courtroom, you have the defense and you have the prosecution. Satan acts as prosecution. Satan is always there in the Bible when we see different times when uh, the saints are seen in heaven. There's always this prosecutor next to them. It was interesting when Amy and I went to Russia to adopt Sinjana, you had to go to court, and that was somebody's job as the prosecution to argue against us for adopting. You would, we go to court for something like that now, you just have people who are asking you questions and things. You don't have somebody who stands there accusing, but they had that. They had a, a satan there. They didn't call her that, but that was her job, was to say, she ought not, they ought not be able to do this. And they came up with different reasons that were just generic reasons they didn't have anything personally on us but we were afraid they were going to find out <laughs> you know it's like it's quite a scary thing to stand in a courtroom and have somebody who's uh, arguing against you and this is what's taking place in the heavenly realms is satan accusing the brothers in verse 10 at the end of verse 10 accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our god so Satan does not cease, or did not cease to accuse. But now what do we have in heaven? We have Jesus Christ. And what's he doing? He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us, constantly interceding. Things are going bad. He's like, help him. He's praying. You have Jesus praying for you. And elsewhere, we're told that you have the Holy Spirit within you, groan, with praying to God with groanings too deep for words when we don't even know how to pray. So you've got that going for you. God himself is praying to God for you on your behalf. But before Jesus Christ went to the cross, what we have is, uh, well, let's look at this. John chapter 8, verse 43. So the Gospel of John chapter, chapter 8 
verse 43. Jesus is preaching to the Jews, and he says in verse 43, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So this is what we have going on with Satan in the world as even today is happening where people have really the devil as their father and they hate the truth. And so if you present the truth, they're not going to listen to that. And this is what Jesus is saying to the non-believing group of Jews that he's speaking to is the reason you don't believe me is because I'm telling the truth. So this is why faith has to come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You present the truth, you can present it logically, and as R.C. Sproul like to say, belief in God is not a logic problem. It is a moral problem. So that you can argue and defend scripture, which you should do logically and coherently, but until a person comes to the place where they recognize their sin and their rebellion against a holy God, it won't make any difference, any logical arguments you make, and you know this, anybody can recognize this uh, event that happens just in people. If you see somebody who is doing something that is entirely self-destructive, it's obvious and plain to everyone that it is self-destructive. It's probably even obvious to the person who is engaged in the self-destructive behavior, and you lay it out logically how they should not be engaged in this, and they will go, yes and amen, I know but I'm still going to do it because, and then they've got all the reasons, and those reasons are the ones they cling to so that they can do the destructive behavior, and, and that's it. And so that's the state of non-believers is suppress the knowledge of God in their sin. The heavens declare the glory of God. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Scripture tells us these things. No, it doesn't. There is a God. No, there isn't. You know, it's just... God's got to do something. And he uses his word to wake people up that he is calling to himself. So we do not give, hope, give up hope and we pray for people and we continue to live out lives of righteousness and holiness, letting our, our good deeds shine before the world that they might see them and glorify our Father in heaven. Then if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So it's just a few more pages into the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Begin reading in verse 3. And again, he's talking to people who are, he's, you know, he's preaching the word. He's not doing it in underhanded ways. He's just presenting the truth as Paul is writing this. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, and that's Satan, the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So that's why you have so much trouble getting people sometimes to understand what you're talking about when you're sharing spiritual things when you're talking about scripture and the gospel is because the god of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the light so the good news is there's one who's more powerful than the god of this world and he works on the spiritual realms and he works through his word now, I hope you keep your place in Revelation because we will continue to, to go back there. So, Revelation, again, chapter 10, um, the last half of it, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So, who is he accusing? And it's obvious here he's accusing the brothers. He's accusing believers. Now, this goes back to Old Testament people, too. Hebrews 11, people are saved in the Old Testament by faith. And so you have the accuser, Satan, the whole time that Christians, that believers in the Old Testament are dying and they're appearing to God in heaven. And Satan is like, no, no, you cannot let this person into heaven. No. I mean, think about the argument that he would have with, with Adam. He, he ate, you told him, and he ate, and what are you doing? You can't let him in. And so all these arguments that Satan would make against the Old Testament saints, valid arguments. And so he continues to accuse. He continues to accuse. So even look at the, the book of Job, chapter 1. It's one of the places you, you kind of have to go. It's before Psalms. Job chapter 1, verse 6. So Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the accuser, came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Well, have you considered my servant Job? Now, it's interesting always in Job that it's not Satan who comes up and says, Let's talk about Job. It's God who says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now what we're going to see in the book of Job is God is going to allow Satan to do terrible things with Job and his family. And it's what happens in the world. Terrible things happen to people. But the question is, will Job maintain his faith as these terrible things happen to him? And he allows Satan to do these things, but he always puts a limit on what Satan can do so that God is in control of Satan. But we are in a cursed world 
things happen, and God allows things to happen for his purposes. So then Satan, in verse 9, answers the Lord, and he says, well, does Job fear God for no reason? And see the word fear, you'll see here, it's like he's not saying, well, is he not afraid of you for no reason because you do all these terrible things to him, and so he's afraid of you. So we see here clearly the word fear in Scripture means to, to, to respect and to trust and to follow him above all things. Does he fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? So in other words, Satan's like, I can't even get into him because you've protected him and I can't get there. No wonder he's worshiping you. I can't even get to him. You've blessed the work of his hands and all his possessions have increased in the land. But you stretch out your hand and you touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. He's telling God. That's a challenge to God. This is the accuser. And he's accusing God. And he's accusing Job. And he accuses us. And our question as we read this has to be, what if he touches all that you have? Will you then turn away from him as well? In verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So don't miss this. Satan's in the presence of the Lord. Satan is there. He has access to heaven. Job is probably the oldest of the books written in the Old Testament. And it's written, it's, it is poetry. It's written poetically. But it is about a person. And it's about something that God did with that person. And it is the first thing is, if I remove my protection from you, will you still serve me? And the answer to Job was, though he slay me, I will still serve him. But toward the end, Job begins to accuse God. You know, so that... I am right, self-vindication, because <laughs> his friends keep coming, and they're saying, the reason you're going through hard times, they're all legalists, they're like, the reason you're going through hard times is because you've sinned against him. He's like, I am not, I've, I've done what I'm supposed to be doing. And God here at the beginning of Job even says so, he is blameless and he's righteous. But his friends are saying, then bad things wouldn't be happening to you. So don't believe a church, a preacher, a teacher, or somebody who does this proclamation mess about the preaching that if you just have enough faith, nothing bad will happen to you, you won't find ridiculousness, especially in the time of, of the church. So what God is saying through Job is he gets Job to a point where Job begins to defend himself before God, and God says, you're forgetting who you're talking to. You're, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? And then Job recognizes the distance between him and God as he's talking to him, the magnificence of God and how small he truly is to be accusing God. And so God uses the accuser, the liar, the slanderer of Satan to teach Job a lesson that he needs to, even though he has all kinds of things and even though he's very blessed, he needs to recognize that he is still dust. And that he needs to thank God for all that he has. Job is not blessed because he's so wonderful. He's blessed because God has chosen to bless him for his own purposes. And then one of the last places we need to go is to Zechariah chapter 3. It won't be the last time we do that. Zechariah is toward the end of the prophets. So you just find Malachi and go back a little bit. Zechariah chapter 3. 
verses 1 through 7. To mention R.C. Sproul again, he wrote a children's book called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. A very good book. Talks uses this as the example um, of the story, but it's also talking about the uh, believers who are saved by the gospel. So Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So we talked about Joshua before in Zerubbabel. So you got Joshua the high priest. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, who we believe in Scripture is probably a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person, the Son of God. So the priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing right at his right hand to accuse him. So the high priest is there before God, and Satan is right there beside him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord... And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, this man who's standing beside him has been saved and brought forward. And now Joshua standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. The high priest does not present himself in filthy garments. He has to be without stain, without blemish. And here he stands in filthy. And the word filthy in the Hebrew is kind of a nasty term for nasty filthiness. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, and don't forget Satan's right there kind of doing that. Have you seen the guy on the, the Internet thing that does this? thing? You know, it's like somebody does something complicated and he shows how easy it is and then he does this. See how easy this is? And it's like Satan is standing there looking at, at Joshua, the high priest, and he just goes, look at him. He cannot stand in your presence, and you're letting him stand in your presence. And Satan, the Lord, rebukes him. And this is what he does for us. And then, in verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, he's saying this to Joshua, I have taken your iniquity away from you, your sin away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I will clothe you with pure, holy clothes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This is in the heavenly places. And that's what we've been given, access into the heavenly places. Satan had reason for accusation in all the Old Testament saints in heaven. Satan, how? Why? And he accuses them day and night. But now something final has happened and war arises in heaven with the demonic powers and what the demonic powers thought was victory in the death of Jesus Christ has turned out to be the final defeat. When I was little, I loved to watch Perry Mason. I don't know why. I just did. I watched Perry Mason. Perry Mason always ends in the same way. So if you ever wanted to be a lawyer when you're growing up, you might be a little disappointed that this doesn't happen. But every single time, and is the the um, the, uh, the the prosecutor was um, uh, his last name was Berger, I think. Was that his name? Anybody watch this stuff? I think it was his name. So anyway, he. Um, 
would always, he's like, he's so sure of himself. And then Perry Mason, the, the person who was guilty would always confess his guilt every time. And Berger would be over there every time. He, oh, he just, again, I can't believe I was after the wrong guy. And this guy just bows his head again. So it's kind of like this. Satan has won. He has defeated. He's got all the powers of the world, the kingdoms of the world. They have actually killed the Messiah, the king to come. They killed him. And then he begins to dawn on him what's happened. It begins to all the demonic powers see what's happened as Michael now says, wait a minute. There's some information that the court needs to be aware of. And he brings this about and it turns out that the death of Christ ends up being the final defeat of Satan so that Jesus' righteous blood was spilled. And we see that in verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. The lamb is Jesus Christ. And the way we have conquered the accuser is by the blood of Christ. So that Jesus' righteous blood was spilled and he became a curse on the cross for all of his people. And he lives again to, to bring the believers in himself before the Father. And we see in him the final defeat of Satan. All right, Colossians 2. So here we go. This is a very important passage. So you get to all these little writings of Paul, GEPC. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul, again, is writing to his church. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, again, these are the demonic powers. Don't listen to them. For in him the whole fullness, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what Jesus did, you did. You died with him. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is uniting you to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see that represented, signified, and sealed in water baptism as we see the waters of baptism sprinkled upon a person or even if you immerse the person in water, but the water represents the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ cleansing that person, uniting that person covenantally to the death of burial and resurrection of Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, which is the most poetic goodness. Jesus nailed to the cross. And now he takes every Thing that Satan could use as a legal accusation against us. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And now what Michael and his angels can do is say, yeah, where is that list? Can you look at the cross? 
Can you remember what you did? Can you see the blood of Christ has been spilled? Can you see that all the Old Testament saints that you've been accusing, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Can you not see now that what Jesus did on the cross was your undoing, that everything you did to defeat all the people in the world, that when they come to Christ, his blood has been shed in their place because you got Adam and you got the whole human race. Do you see the principle at work that if you get Jesus, then everybody in him is represented by him? And we get Jesus when a sinner who is in Adam and guilty and condemned turns to Christ and pleads his blood and trusts in him alone for their salvation. You stand before a holy God and there's no Satan up there accusing because the accuser has been cast down. But in the heavenly realms, there's no accusation. The accusations, the legal requirements that required your death and your blood and your condemnation forever, nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross. That's the gospel. And Satan has no power over you now. Verse 15 he disarmed the rulers, Jesus. Disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's why they can't win in court. They laid down their weapons. They're in a war with no weapons. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And so then he goes on talking about, so don't let anybody pass judgment on you about stuff. <laughs> you know, especially not Satan. And so then... Back in verse 12, that we've conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The word of our testimony of Jesus Christ. We confess the Lord God. We believe in our hearts. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and you shall be saved. So that even the powers of darkness have no ability to be able to destroy us even unto death. The body they may kill. And so this is what Luther started about. He didn't just say, one day I will die. He said, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. One little word shall fell to Satan. And that name is Christ, but Jesus above all earthly powers. So we give our testimony, and we need to love not our lives even unto death like Job. Recognize the fact that God is in control. God is good, God is holy, God is right, God is just. He has secured our salvation so that the accusations of Satan, which are now levied against us here, so verse 12, therefore rejoice heavens, all you who dwell them, but woe earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Good news, time is short. Bad news, well, we, it, short can be a long time for, for us. It would be our entire lives. It would be generations and generations. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years to us and vice versa. But the devil's wrath is short. And the way we defeat him, one, is simple. Um, resist him. And he flees the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you know it in your Christian experience if you've been a Christian for long and you've experienced the attacks and accusations of Satan and it can come from the world it can come from demonic forces themselves and our own flesh accusing us you're not good enough look at your filthy robes you can't do this you can't do that and so what we do is preach the gospel to ourselves 
uh, as Jack Miller said, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are, and God's grace is better than you ever imagined. Where are the accusations against you? Nailed to the cross. The accuser who stands before the brothers no longer has any weapons, no longer any purpose, no ability to accuse us in the heavenly courts. He's gone, he's been cast down, and now he's just down here just trying to reap the havoc he can while he can. That's it, that's all he's doing, trying to make problems while he can. And the reason he's a ten-headed dragon now is because many Christians today are 95% there and they're 5% in the world and they're not totally sold out to all these things. Uh, there's a recent study that was talking about uh, different things in the culture. It, uh, and it's, the, one of the results was that what they're seeing in the world in our country is it used to be um, in the 70s, even the 80s, that people, and way before that, people chose their politics based on their faith. Like your faith determines your political stances. Um, today, your political views determines your faith. That's what they're seeing. Whoever you follow politically will tend to dictate where your faith is. That's because we've replaced the one true God with the dragon. We gotta be careful with that. It doesn't mean all government is evil. It doesn't mean all churches are evil because we'll see also later in Revelation false prophet, false teachers. But what it means is Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And Psalm 2 is all over the place here in Revelation where rulers of the world be wise, kiss the son lest ye die. Honor Christ. He is king. He is the one who has forgiven our sins. There is, he is the one who has removed all accusation from us. So if government begins to treat us in such a way that we start to see that we are trusting in government in a way that we ought to trust in God, beware of that. If you start to trust in your spouse in a way that you ought to trust in God, beware of that. If you start to trust in your children or your parents in a way that is reserved only for God, beware of that. Because what is happening in the world is his wrath and power are great. And he seeks who he can devour. And he controls many powerful aspects of this world. But the most powerful thing in this world is the church of Jesus Christ and we have allowed ourselves to believe that it's not it doesn't mean that we won't be martyred it doesn't mean that we won't become very small but what it means is is that when God works his works in this world he does it for and through the church so what God is telling us in the book of Revelation is don't look at things the way the world's looking at it. It's a ten-headed dragon. Diadems and it's coming after you and all these things. But you know, that dragon was in heaven accusing you all the time. Michael and his angels have defeated him with the blood of Christ and the testimony of believers and he's just been cast down. He's not, there's no condemnation. But he's wrathful. Don't give place to him. Trust in the word of God. Everything else it can be deceptive. Trust in the word of God. Follow the word of God. Believe in the word of God. And he gives us his supper. He, he baptizes us, brings us into his family, and then he does not leave us alone. He gives us himself. He says, drink this blood. Drink this wine. This is the cup of the new covenant given for you. Do this in remembrance, renewing this covenantal relationship. This is what this is. 
And so as we come to the table, it's a reminder that he is ours and we are his. It's not just for members of this church, but it's for members of a, a gospel church that believes the Bible and the Trinity and Jesus Christ died for our sins and all these things. And if you're a member in good standing, you've been admitted to the table by your church, then we invite you to come to this table as well. But there's more happening at this table than just an outward expression of something we believe. It is the Lord Jesus Christ telling his people, I'm giving myself to you. He is spiritually present in this meal and is a means of great grace to us. So let's pray. Father God, you sent your son Jesus and he defeated Satan on the cross. And now all the things that have been held against us are nailed to that very cross. And you provide for us in this desert. You nourish us. Satan is just a loud, scary blowhard who has deceived many people. So help us not to be deceived. Help us to resist him, and he'll flee. And we know that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So help us to help one another, to nourish one another, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see your day approaching. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.